I'm Doug Storm for Interchange. Our opening music is Dixieland Delight by the American country and southern rock band Alabama. Alabama's biggest success came in the 1980s, where the band had over 27 number one hits, seven multi-platinum albums, and received numerous awards. The band has over 30 number one country records on the Billboard charts to their credit and have sold over 75 million records, making them one of the world's best-selling bands of all time. Their music is our soundtrack tonight. On June 1st, 1985, President Ronald Reagan began a radio address to the nation on tax reform this way. I wonder how many of you know about the Quaker whose patience was sorely tried when the cow he was trying to milk kept kicking the milk pail over. Finally, he got up from the milking stool, faced the cow and said, Thou knowest I cannot strike thee. Thou knowest I cannot even curse thee. But dost thou knowest I can sell thee to someone who will? Reagan then blamed the special interests and official Washington for trying to pick apart his plan and opposing so many of the good things he tried to do for the American people. Then he returns to the Quaker and his cow. Just like that Quaker's cow, many in official Washington make a habit of kicking over the American people's milk pail. And as my chief of staff Don Regan said recently, we're going to need the people to talk to the cow and maybe ask him a few questions about how he or she likes it here on the farm. Just so we're all following, the cow appears to represent the politicians in Washington and the people being the Quaker, I guess. In the address, Reagan claimed the mantle of the people's lobbyist, and here he was asking the people to threaten official Washington to pass his agenda. The strongest political message enduring from the Reagan years is that we, the people, cannot trust politicians to do anything but act in a self-interested manner. But the same theory holds for you also. You are not to be trusted beyond being a self-interested agent trying to get politicians to do your bidding. And using this logic, so is Reagan. In a country with a chasm between the haves and the have-nots, who benefits from the proposition that instead of being an answer to our economic problems, the government is the problem? This is one of the tenets of public choice theory and one of the current methodological chains on democracy. Welcome to Interchange. Tonight's show is We the Shackled. The story of the Reagan years, drafted years earlier, and still our story, divides all of the people into makers and takers, a minority and a majority. And hey, minorities have rights, right? But the minority in this story are the so-called libertarians and billionaires like Charles Koch. To this group, Reagan was a disappointment. My guest for the next 90 minutes is Nancy McLean, professor of history and public policy at Duke University and author of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right's Stealth Plan for America. This book has the Koch cadre at the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, and George Mason University's Mercatus Center up in arms over its characterization of one of their patron saints, the Nobel laureate of public choice theory, James McGill Buchanan, and the way his work offers the clearest path to putting democracy, the we the people aspect of our government, in chains. In other words, Nancy McLean gives us a history of the anti-democratic ethos at the heart of supremacy politics, from the slave-era constitutional constructions of John C. Calhoun to the complementary project of Nobel laureate and Southern gentleman Jim Buchanan. McLean charts the course of the ideas that have served to unchain the power of right-wing oligarchs like Charles and David Koch and put we the people in tightening shackles. 
Well, that uh, book ended up taking me to a uh, an economist, a libertarian uh, economist named James McGill Buchanan, who ultimately supplied the ideas that finally enabled Charles Koch's libertarianism to be successful. Um, but I did not know that, and I didn't go looking for that initially. I, mm-hmm. you know, I found that trail through the archives. I had initially been looking, uh, f- trying to understand why it was that. Uh, f- those that some people call free market fundamentalists, others call neoliberals, you know, people trained at the Chicago School of Economics, uh, why such people were getting involved in the Southern Schools fight that answered Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, in 1956, uh, the state of Virginia led the wider South in what was called massive resistance to implementation of the Brown decision from the Supreme Court in 1954 that called for um, uh, the end of all state-sponsored segregation of public schools and um, for desegregation. And what intrigued me uh, as I was following this Virginia story, and particularly um, the the, uh, shutdown of schools in Prince Edward County, Virginia in 1959, uh, closure of public schools that lasted until 1964 and completely locked out almost Mm -hmm. 2,000 black children of all ages from from education in those years, I was trying to understand how it was that these free market economists were getting involved in this Virginia debate. And at first I found Milton Friedman, um, who issued a uh, manifesto for vouchers in 1955, you know, as Mm -hmm. news had been coming up from the South for a few years that the most avid segregationists were threatening to end public education. And that really shocked me and and got my interest. Um, And so for a time, I thought I was looking at Friedman's relationship to all this, and I thought I was telling a school story. Uh, but in the process of doing the research, I happened on James Buchanan and found out that he started a whole new school of political economy in these years, from 1956 to uh, 19 uh, into the 1960s, early 1960s, um, and uh, for a variety of reasons, became more and more interested in him. And so I kind of left Friedman behind, and the school story still appears in the book as a kind of crucible for these ideas, but instead of being a story about schools, it ends up being a story about the profound threat to our democracy that has developed uh, as a result of the merger of Charles Koch's money and messianism about his vision for the world and how to affect it, and uh, the merger of that money and vision in James Buchanan's practical understanding of government, which supplied a kind of operational strategy for Koch to achieve what he had been unable to for the three decades of trying prior to uh, the 1990s when Mm -hmm. he set to work in earnest. Yeah, these are... um, I've been doing the show now uh, for four years, I think, and and, um, it it gets hard to separate... Like this sense, this overwhelming sense that that the obviously the cards are stacked. You know, the deck is stacked in some way, and and trying to understand how they get stacked, or trying to understand the 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 energy and money that goes into stacking it, right, mm-hmm. is is a part of what what the show has done for me as well. And reading books like this, yours, and uh, actually I, I hadn't read Jay Mayer's book, but because I read your book, I read Jay Mayer's book um, to you know, just get a broader sense of it. You can get much of this stuff in the left literature already, right? A lot of the, I mean, you can talk about Coke for, for, you know, days on end uh, at this point. But what is as interesting here is, 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 as you say, trying to trace um, the kind of intellectual threads that walk through um, this, I guess you say, putting democracy in chains, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to say, 
Uh, these things are, these progressive things have happened in this country and a certain group or a certain level, a certain class of people don't want those things to happen. And hey. how can we stop them from happening? You know, what are the, what are the mechanisms that we can, that we can fight public opinion? Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's what your book gives us, you know, this, this tracing of that particular idea. Yeah, and, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I have learned so much from the investigative journalism of uh, people like um, Jane Mayer and the wonderful Center for Media and Democracy, mm -hmm. uh, PR Watch, Lisa Graves, Alex Coe. You know, there's a bunch of really, mm -hmm. really talented journalists on this trail, and I've learned so much from them. Um, it, but I think it also really does help us to understand kind of the crucible in which these ideas were shaped. And mm -hmm. to me, it wasn't, you know, what, what I learned in this research is that it wasn't just the civil rights movement. I mean, the, the, the people that I'm tracing who end up being in the orbit of, of Charles Koch and his apparatus, um, the, them or their you know, immediate predecessors mm -hmm. were really reacting to the whole democratization of the 20th century, mm -hmm. you could say, you know, mm -hmm. from the from 1890s on as the populist movement, you know, and then the labor movement, the women's suffrage movement, you know, all of these groups put pressure on uh, the federal government to act on these you know, various kinds of problems that had been allowed to fester in the age when corporations were so dominant mm -hmm. uh, at the turn of the century and where anything that um, citizens tried to do was essentially overruled by the, the Supreme Court of the day. And so what I saw in this reaction from the right, um, the libertarian right to Brown versus Board of Education was a, a feeling that the Brown versus Board of Education decision was only the latest example of something that they had been hating on, you could say, as right. you know, the young people do now, <laughs> for a long time. And that was, again, this model of the progressive era government that brought us federal regulations of food and, you know, water and so forth. And then also, especially the empowerment of ordinary citizens um, that came with the New Deal's uh, um, putting the power of the federal government behind workers' rights to organize, mm -hmm. and, say, and also the um, interpretation of the Commerce Clause of the Constitution to allow regulation and to allow other kinds of social reform. And it was that, that structure that the civil rights movement was building on in the 1950s and 60s, and later the women's movement and the environmental movement would. But for these libertarians on the right, it was almost like a kind of, they had a kind of x-ray vision that took everything back to this model of government and of of government power operating on behalf of um, or an answer to or an organized citizenry that really, really um, uh, enraged them mm. and set them to organizing their own cause. And so this guy that I write about, Buchanan, he really develops a set of ideas that enables these people on the right who had for so long been so marginal, he enables them to be effective uh, by showing a way to kind of uh, reverse engineer the, the 20th century state. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Nancy McLean, whose book, Democracy in Chains, tracks the ideas behind the political success of Charles Koch. Well, there's a, I guess there's a, a sense where we try to understand the conservative versus the reactionary. Uh, I don't know... It's hard for me to understand those distinctions frequently, like trying to understand how one isn't logically a part of the other um, or how one easily goes from one to the other frequently. But mm -hmm. if we were to say, 
that there is a conservative sense that change happens, right? And that the best you want to do is manage the pace of it as right. a conservative, right? So let's, the, the constitution is such that it will uh, slow down progress already. It has those, those, those particular chains in it already, as, as you make mm-hmm. note in your book. But the reactionary wants no change or wants to go back to some halcyon slave-owning state, it seems like, right? <laughs> that's, the, that's the gist of the book in some sense, right? That you're going to trace this to Calhoun. Not slave-owning. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> they're trying to, uh, you know... Re- well, um, I definitely think, you know, like, I do, you know, emancipation, I think that's, you know, that's yeah. a change that they, yeah. the, the libertarians are, are <laughs> more than comfortable with. But after that, most things that the federal government has done are, you know, in the way of social reform are definitely uh, not approved by, mm-hmm. by this cause. Um, and, well, I will say, too. So, um, yeah, so it's a strange cause, but I'm really glad that you did pick up on that distinction between the conservative and I would say the libertarian. You know, mm-hmm. I do think it is a reactionary agenda, but that's not, and they would not call themselves reactionaries, whereas they would call themselves libertarians. And, you know, I'm for, you know, trying to understand people where they see themselves. Um, and so, and you're so right that a conservative, well, here, let, let me say this a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, mentioned that you felt confused mm-hmm. sometimes, right, in trying to parse this out. Right. And I guess my starting point in answer to that would be to say, you are right to be confused, because I think there are some people who are deliberately mm-hmm. throwing sand in the eyes of the citizenry. And what I mean by that is there's a longstanding conservative tradition in America, yes. But the libertarian uh, tradition that arose after World War II and that has been championed by Charles Koch since the 1960s understood itself as a radical cause, right? Sometimes they call themselves radical reaction. Mm -hmm. And Charles Koch, well through the 1970s, you know, insisted that this was a radical cause, they could have no truck with conservatives, you know, that conservatives were status, you know, as bad as liberals, so forth and so on, you know, you must be radical and be pure and never compromise. Well, that was in the 1970s and the early 1980s. The more that Charles Koch got interested in power uh, and the people around him and the apparatuses and the think tanks he funds got interested in power, the more they began to blur the distinctions between libertarianism and conservatism. And so particularly since they've really pushed hard to transform our politics um, since uh, 2010, you know, 2009, 2010, um, they, they have taken on the mantle of conservatism when there's nothing about these people that is conservative. Right. You know, I mean, they are try- they're uprooting all kinds of social norms, institutions, practices of governance, etc. Mm-hmm. And as much as they talk about the Founders' Constitution, they actually find that Founders' Constitution to be inadequate for their property supremacist cause. Mm-hmm. So they are pushing for a constitutional comment, uh, a constitutional convention in which they would be ad, able to add multiple new amendments that would suppress the power of the citizenry and would enhance the um, uh, autonomy of co- the corporations and the wealthy uh, in our country. So it's a very, very radical cause um, with a very reactionary vision, uh, but it is, uh, I believe, cynically exploiting the mass voter base that right. conservatism brings because libertarianism um, attracts like less than 4% of the electorate. Mm-hmm. So they will never get to success by telling people what they actually want and what they're really, right. really trying to achieve. Let's go to a break. 
This is Alabama with Song of the South, a number one hit on Billboard's Hot Country Songs from 1989. We the Shackled continues with Nancy McLean when Interchange returns on WFHB. Shut my mouth. Gone, gone with the wind. There ain't nobody looking back again. Cotton on the roadside, cotton in the ditch. We all picked the cotton, but we never got rich. Daddy was a veteran, a Southern Democrat. They ought to get a rich man to vote like that, singing song, song of the South. Sweet potato pie, and I shut my mouth. Gone, gone with the wind. There ain't nobody looking back again. Somebody told us Wall Street fell But we were so poor that we couldn't tell Cotton was short and the weeds were tall But Mr. Roosevelt are gonna save us all Welcome back, I'm Doug Storm. For this 90-minute interchange, I'm speaking with Nancy McLean about her new book, Democracy in Chains. We're trying to understand the politics of the billionaires who fund right-wing think tanks like Cato, and who fund the American Legislative Exchange Council. Privatization is always key, and Social Security has always been a main target. But generally, we the people hate the ideas of libertarians. How have they been so successful? They never tell the truth about their intentions. Well, that's one of the points that, that everyone makes in some, in, in like having these discussions that we talk about making sure we understand each other and, and, and civil speech and all these things that have happened, uh, I think on purpose, right? These ideas that we need to have, uh, why, we're, why we're not having civil dialogue. This, this is usually coming from, a, again, a right-wing group or a Bill Crystal or something like that that says we need to have a civil conversation. And civil conversation begs, begs the question of, of, of being honest, Right. Or of being sincere about what you're saying. Um, and I, I, I don't I think I mentioned it in an email, perhaps, but I have been talking with several people about John Stuart Mill. And, you know, On Liberty is one of those, those books that uh, all, all people like to talk about. Right. Uh, Mill gives us these frameworks for how to have a civil discussion or how to how to talk about liberty and. And, uh, you know, at the end of it, it says you really shouldn't call people names, basically. Um, and even if they're not telling you the truth, well, maybe they're not aware of the truth or maybe they're ignorant or maybe, you know, you, can't, you just can't know what they're, they're hiding necessarily or you can't have enough evidence to know that they're hiding things. But I think that's not the case, right? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we can know that there's a large group of people with lots of money out there who hide very much exactly what it is they want. Yes, absolutely. And and frankly, I think that's the single most important takeaway from my book that I hope that readers will get is seeing, you know, from the mouths of these people over the years, their own understanding that they are consigned to permanent minority status in the the electorate and that people don't want what they're selling. And when people learn what they're selling, they they turn away from it. You know, Barry Goldwater's candidacy in 1964 is an example of that. You know, we remember him for being, for voting against the Civil Rights Act and for being very aggressive in foreign policy. But in his political economic ideas, he also called for privatizing Social Security. Mm -hmm. He wanted to sell off the Tennessee Valley Authority, which had brought rural electrification to uh, communities, you know, to, to, to 
hundreds of thousands of Southerners that they really appreciated. Um, and he wanted a flat tax. He wanted uh, to disempower labor unions. I mean, you could just go on and mm-hmm. on. And the only place his vision sold was in, other than his home state of Arizona, was the uh, five uh, states in the Deep South that practiced the most severe voter suppression. Right. You know, so so they saw, whoa, you know, when we say it openly, it doesn't sell. And that experience right. was repeated over the years. Um, and so uh, one of the things that my book points to, too, is the, the really pivotal question of Social Security mm-hmm. so and, Medic- and later Medicare. But this cause that I'm writing about, they oppose Social Security from the start. They mm-hmm. hate the principle of social insurance, and they have long wanted to privatize Social Security. Uh, but that is not a popular cause because everybody in America, you know, un- until recently, and I think, you know, still overwhelmingly, most Americans understand that Social Security is a very good program, that it works very well, they like it, they want to, you know, make it, expand it and make it better, but certainly not privatize it and give the funds to financial corporations. Mm-hmm. But that is what this libertarian cause wants, and it began to prioritize Social Security privatization in the early 19. 19- uh, 1980s, and this uh, guy that I uh, write about, you know, there's kind of two people in the Coke book who are key, James Buchanan and Charles Coke. James Buchanan actually um, uh, taught the operatives at the, at the Cato Institute, mm-hmm. um, which was founded by Coate, how to push for Social Security privatization without telling voters that's what you were doing. Right. And it's really like there's a, you know, a step-by-step um, a process that he goes through that is just chilling to anybody who believes that what we should be doing in politics is, you know, declaring our values and our goals and making, as you say, an honest and open case for why we believe a particular course to be the best course. Um, and this cause is not doing that. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's being deceitful in the way it's advancing its goals, and it is also poisoning the well of public debate. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really chilling thing to be aware of, too, in that you'll have, you know, sort of some wings of the operations funded by uh, Charles Koch and his now large no- network of uh, extreme right donors. Some wings of those will talk in very high-minded terms and say that they are um, the defenders of classical liberalism of the kind you just mentioned with John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, and yet other wings of this operation are promoting voter suppression with what they know to be the lie of voter fraud to pretend that there's massive voter fraud going on. They try to get people to the polls by, with direct mail, and I know because I'm on the list, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with direct mail saying, you know, that was uh, going into the election of 2016, warning people that the election was about to be stolen by millions of illegal aliens. I mean, this is just outright lies. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Nancy McLean, whose book, Democracy in Chains, tracks the ideas behind the political success of Charles Koch. Let's let's clarify right wing too, uh, or try to understand this uh, this small. It's a, a fairly sm- well. It's grow it grows obviously, but uh, it's been a fairly small group of very wealthy people um, mm-hmm. and family wealth yes. for the most part. Uh, in in a sense, a kind of gilded age inheritance in some ways, right? Uh, that that comes forward through this family wealth a lot of times. Or um, and and I'm trying to understand what's right wing about it, right? In, in terms of conservative values or, fa- as you say, family values uh, that aren't just, that aren't just uh, useful elements of how to get more people to 
give you their, you know, to give you more money in some sense, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if nihilist is the right word for a lot of these positions, right? Which uh, which uses these particular political hot points or emotional uh, states for people uh, to simply maneuver a political chess piece, right? Into into getting laws passed that will allow them to continue to pollute, continue to just get more money however they can. And so I wonder what that means to be a right wing. If it's if it's simply an economic, well, the, like the use of the term right. economic liberty, right, which means get right. more for me and mine, and what that means uh, ethically, politically, morally, you know, what's the world view of I need more, and to do that, I need to take it from you. Yeah, well, what they would say, they would kind of flip that, and I think, you know, as far as like the basic left-right um, distinction, mm-hmm. they, I um, parse it is just like as it came down from the French Revolution, you know, mm-hmm. with the two sides of, of the assembly, but that, that the side of the right is on the side of like property and hierarchy, mm-hmm. and the side of the left is on the side of um, democracy and equality, um, you know, and, and, and obviously those are very broad categories, right. and there's, you know, partic- different ways people have, you know, filled them in over time. But for me, that's the broad thing, that these are people who really disdain the idea of equality um, and don't think that people are even capable of well, it. Let's, let's, stop, let's, let's literally stop right there, then. Let's, democracy, let, yeah. Let's stop with that, then. Uh-huh. Equality. Like, that yeah. people aren't equal. Now, you can have an intellectual discussion about the, the fact that some people are faster, some are stronger, some are smarter, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. The, the equality is about people having an equal life, in a sense, an equal chance at life, an equal living opportunity, right. you know, and, and you get stuck using the same words they use, right? Opportunity is, yeah. is one of my least yeah. favorite words, right? Um, but, but to imagine, and it's not hard to imagine that there are people that just believe that there's no such thing, that there are superiors and inferiors. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the, that's the basis of that, the foundation of their thinking. Charles Koch is superior Yes, and uh, yeah, he's made that clear more yeah, than once. Of course, yeah, you're not. We're not yeah. putting words in his mouth, right? So, right. Uh, and one assumes that this is how most people who believe that they should own the world must feel yes. about themselves. And it's an interesting, you know, like you can't have much of a conversation about that particular fact, right? You just it just seems to be the case. And I'm remind you I don't know that you'll know this at all and it it doesn't really matter but it popped into my head right now. There's a song by the group Jane's Addiction at one point he says some people should die. That's just unconscious knowledge and that is the that is the 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 baseline for this kind of thinking to me. You know, as you say before, if you choose a particular kind of economic system that 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 shuts out Medicaid or Medicare, that, that makes you work until you're 92 years old, that doesn't care if you don't get care because it doesn't fit the economic or political system you, you propose. It's irrelevant to you. Yeah, that's such an important um, line of looking of, at all this that you're raising, and it's interesting that you went to healthcare because, as you were saying, yeah. it I was also thinking of healthcare. Yeah. And you know, Rand Paul, the libertarian, just um, it just just said at a press conference that nobody has died because of lack of access to healthcare or to <laughs> health insurance. I mean, that's just like such a bald faced lie, oh, you know. Man, like we can, yeah. but 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 it's not. I don't think it's. I think it's. It's almost not. A, it's a mistake to see it as a lie. It just shows how this ideology is so dogmatic. And 
and circular and self-reinforcing and impervious to evidence in the way that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. But but I think what's interesting, too, in the, the recent, it, there's so many things that are interesting yeah, about yeah. this, the healthcare mashup, but you could see that, that the, basically this libertarian cause believes that you should have nothing that you haven't earned or saved for yourself and that it is illegitimate and it is exploitation of wealthier taxpayers mm-hmm. for anyone to receive Medicaid, um, you know, or, or, or be supported uh, in their in living, essentially, with resources from the government that come from taxation of others' activity. And so they would rather have people die Mm -hmm. for lack of insurance uh, than have them get something from government that comes from tax revenues. And I think that just, you know, there is an ethical system there, but it is so stark and so cruel and so antithetical to every religious tradition, Mm -hmm. you know, in the world, that it is really, really chilling. And I think it does come back to what you were saying about the superiority and inferiority um, notions that are built in to this set of ideas, because they think capitalism is this pure and wonderful and, you know, all-knowing system that rewards effort and punishes sloth. And so if you... um, somehow fail, you know, say you, your, your plant shuts down, right? And mm-hmm. you lose your, and then, then, then your company somehow, you know, weasels out of its insurance obligations mm-hmm. and you're left with no health care um, and somebody in your family gets cancer, you know, you, that, that's your problem. You know, yeah. you should have been saving yeah, for right, that. And right. if you didn't save for that eventuality, well, then you're just a slothful person who doesn't yeah. care about your family and seeing your relative die of cancer will make your neighbors and other citizens realize that they better save so they don't end up in such a terrible fate. Here's another break and another song from the country and southern rock group Alabama, doing their best to exemplify and continue the mythologies most helpful to the billionaire oligarchs, keeping the white have-nots fighting the have-nots of color in the U.S. This is Mountain Music, a country number one from 1982. Like Grandma and Grandpa used to play Then I float on down the river To Cajun Hideaway Drift away like Tom Sawyer Ride around with old Huck Finn Take a nap like Rip Van Winkle They dreamin' again some mountain music like Grandma and Grandpa used to play Then I float on down the river to Cajun Hideaway
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is We the Shackled and features Democracy in Chains author and Duke University history professor Nancy McLean. We closed the last segment with McLean characterizing a libertarian perspective on health insurance. It's for wimps. If you haven't been saving for that cancer diagnosis, that's on you. In this segment, we look at how social Darwinism promotes the idea of a class of superior humans who deserve to lord it over the rest of us. We also talk about the racist constitutional theorist John C. Calhoun and his brilliant strategy to control state legislatures in order to keep the Fed at bay and keep the people in their place. Again, so many times when I was reading this stuff, I would just like gasp for air, you know, mm-hmm. at the, the way of looking at the world and other human beings that comes through this ideology, because it is just so stark and cruel. And I really, um, there's always been a long association between these libertarian ideas and what gets called social Darwinism, mm-hmm. you know, the notion that some people are fit and mm-hmm. that other people aren't fit, and that the fit should survive mm-hmm. and the unfit should should perish. Um, and it's really, really ugly stuff. Right. But, you know, when I was in James Buchanan's office, there he was with William Graham Sumner's, um, you know, book about social Darwinism mm-hmm. right out on his desk, you know, mm-hmm. and for all of these guys, the only way they can sustain their vision of capitalism as a just and ethical system, uh, you know, without any intervention by government or the countervailing power of citizens to make it, you know, human and sustainable, the only way they can maintain that vision is to start dividing the population into the worthy that they call the productive mm-hmm. and the, the unworthy that they, Buchanan actually called them predators, mm-hmm. um, exploiters, they call them leechers, you know, they did make this makers and takers distinction. Right. It's just, you know, which also, like, where does that leave a, a mother, you right. know? Like, right. somebody who's not in the labor force, who's, like, raising children, or someone who has to leave the labor force to care for elderly relatives, is that person a leech on society? Mm-hmm. Is that person a predator on the rich? I mean, it's just such a, a mind-bogglingly um, uh, brutal uh, take on the world that I, I, I think if people understood that this is how these people really think, mm-hmm. um, uh, I think a lot of people would recoil, including a lot of the, the religious people right. you know, who are voting for this transformed Republican Party. Yeah, there, there's so much there, and, and it's it's so tempting to 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 make it simpler, right? yeah. <laughs> to to reduce it in some sense, you know. Right. Well, so so let's 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 go back to Calhoun though, because I think, and maybe that's maybe that's where you've gotten into trouble with the with the book from the right side of things, from the George Masonites that are out there uh, causing you uh, occasional difficulties in 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 print. Uh, but um, you know, tying Calhoun to Buchanan to Coke 
you know, we kind of walk through this property class and property for Calhoun is, is slaves. And I mentioned this earlier and we kind of, we, we quickly, you know, said, well, we don't want to go back to slavery. I'm, I'm not sure people want to go back to slavery, but I'm not entirely sure of that myself. <laughs> but um, if we go back to Calhoun, here's a guy that's writing uh, brilliantly, right, on the Constitution mm-hmm. and, and, to, and to protect his class, his property-owning class and property as slaves and obviously land and, and tobacco and cotton and whatnot. But it, those things don't matter without the labor to make them work. Right. And uh, one assumes Calhoun was sure, surely aware of his own sense of superiority. Like, mm-hmm. uh, he was as messianic as Charles Koch. Right. Similarities right. are kind of uncanny. Yeah. Well, so let's, if we do that, and, and again, we use these, these things we call intellectual designs, right, where we say Calhoun was a, a, a brilliant thinker in constitutional uh, uh, legal ideas, right? So Calhoun wants to put the state between the Fed and you, Right, the Fed and the person, but also wants to put the state between the municipality yes. and 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 the Fed or and the state. You know, wants the, the state basically to be this blocking force mm-hmm. for property, right? Okay. And we, we actually just experienced this in Indiana. We had a, um, a uh, an annexation vote for some, some land outside the city here. And our state govern, government actually uh, passed a law that says we couldn't do it, said Bloomington couldn't do it, but it was specific to Bloomington and possibly is unconstitutional for the state to do something like that, right? But the state is is doing it. Right. right. Specifically saying that municipality around can't, the country, they yeah, call it, yeah, where the yeah. state tells, we're in these um, states that are controlled by the Republican right, right now, right. There, 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 there's been this whole big flurry of, of what is getting called preemption. They preempt right. the autonomy of local communities to do anything from uh, raising wages, you know, municipal wages, mm-hmm. or to um, oh, right, fighting right. discrimination, to even having plastic bag ordinances. Yeah, you can't do that. We can't do it here. localities yeah, learned yeah. in Texas. Mm-hmm, we can't Government do it. wouldn't let them. Mm-hmm, we can't do it here. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, yeah. So you see it happening and, and you think, uh-huh. oh, I didn't realize that's, that that was a facet of states' rights too, that, you know, you, the, on the ground where you know people, right, where you can get out in your community and meet yeah. people and talk to actual people instead of arguing about stuff on Facebook. You can go out in the street and talk to people and try to organize to do things uh, a particular way, but the state has power to stop you from doing so many things. And that's part of it as well. It's fascinating, really, but it's also so disheartening to see it to see it sort of coming to a head now, right? With, I yeah. think we have 34 state You won't be houses. surprised to know that Calhoun pioneered that, too. No, I'm not surprised, right? And yeah. so that's yeah. part of the book. And I, uh, again, I think it's fair to say that's, that's, the, that's the point in the book that you say, that, you, that you're making with James Buchanan, right? Also, uh, like the kind of guy that wants to make a constitutional change, as ra- you know, as radical as you can, yes. to put more chains on the collective will of the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, t- talk a little bit more about James Buchanan then. Uh, you know, uh, I guess if Calhoun you... And st- uh, yeah, yeah. Walk, walk us through that. that. Was, I mean, it was really interesting to me because, and it's also funny, as you said, you know, there's this, um, it's going, let me hear, let's talk about the degradation of liberal discourse mm-hmm. by this emergent right. Um, uh, the senior editor of National Review Magazine, Jonah Goldberg, mm-hmm. said in print that I, Nancy McLean, uh, should be afraid of, quote, the libertarian super posse on my ass, unquote. 
<laughs> you know, that is not like what Jon Stewart Mill. I mean, it's very, it's very, yeah, it's it very witty. It just shows you that yeah. the, the incredible sort of pathetic, um, grotesque bullying mm-hmm. that this right wing has, has come to. But yes, there are these libertarians, um, nearly all of whom have financial indebtedness to the Koch operation, mm-hmm. either working for Koch-funded um, uh, organizations or being academics who have gotten grants, uh, multiple grants from the, the Koch, um, uh, Koch donor, Koch, Charles Koch Foundation or Koch Donor Network. And so, yes, so they have attacked the book. They definitely want to kill the book, mm-hmm. um, not surprisingly. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but one of the things, as you point out, that they have gotten all up in arms about is my drawing this connection to Calhoun between, you know, this connection between Calhoun and Buchanan. And what's so funny about that is one of Buchanan's own colleagues, actually two of his colleagues at George Mason University, who are darlings of this cause and its public representatives, uh, Tyler Cohen and Alexander Tabarrok, they wrote a a piece saying that Buchanan's political economy was, um, they actually, uh, it's, um, anachronistic, um, you know, kind of screwing up history, but they, they described Calhoun's um, political economy as being, and notions about the Constitution as being a precursor mm-hmm, school mm-hmm. of thought Buchanan uh, uh, um, uh, developed, and they said it had the same purpose and effects, you know, and I quote that language, mm-hmm. so it's like they have recognized this kinship. Um, it wasn't like I invented it, um, that kinship is there, and also um, Calhoun was in the air when Buchanan came came to Virginia in uh, the uh, 1956, Calhoun's ideas had been exhumed to fight the Brown versus Board of Education decision, and they were, um, you know, widely being discussed in Virginia's newspapers, etc. And Buchanan had shown no interest in uh, this kind of thought before that, but being in this Virginia hothouse, he began to develop ideas that had a, a close kinship mm. to uh, Calhoun. So, you know, there are many reasons I say that. And also in Buchanan's later years, he was advocating, he was convening uh, corporations and right-wing foundations uh, to advocate um, what he called actions on the spectrum of secession, Mm -hmm. uh, which included privatization, decentralization, um, uh, federalism, etc., to basically drive a race to the bottom by stimulating competition among states. You know, and so a lot of the things that we now think of as kind of um, natural or inevitable results of globalization in terms of the declining living standards and shrinking public services, those were actually things that Buchanan's team pushed for right. to co- corporate audiences using this Calhounian language of, you know, the spectrum of secession. So there's actually so much more that I ended that ended that that I could have put in the book that mm-hmm. I had in earlier drafts on this Calhoun dimension and that I caught, you know, in the interest of making the book short and readable. But mm-hmm. I just think this kinship between um, uh, the Buchanan Coke project and the Calhoun project is really indisputable on the face of the evidence. We'll take another break. This is High Cotton, which finds the 80s era mega successful country group Alabama breaking into Dixie to praise a past that favored the plantation class, that group of owners most resembling our current national oligarchs. More on the racism inherent in the political project of right-wing think tanks when Interchange returns on WFHB. I bet we walked a thousand miles Chopping cotton and pushing plows And learning how to give it all we had As life went on and years went by Saw the light in daddy's eyes And felt the love in mama's hands 
us warm and kept us fed Taught us how to look ahead Now looking back I understand We were walking in high cotton Old times there are not forgotten Those fertile fields are never far away We were walking in high cotton Old times there are not forgotten Leaving home was the hardest thing we ever faced Sunday mornings rolled around We dressed up in hand-me-downs Just in time together with church Sometimes I think how long it's been And how it impressed me then It was the only day my daddy wouldn't work We were walking in high cotton Old times there are not forgotten Those fertile fields are never far away Walking in high cotton, old times there are not forgotten. Home was a Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm, and this is a special 90-minute interchange. Nancy McLean is our guest. She's an historian at Duke University and the author of Democracy in Chains. In this segment, we dive a little deeper into the personal history of the 1986 Nobel Prize winner in economics, James McGill Buchanan. Leaving home was the hardest thing I think in the book you draw some connection to the the work and thinking of those uh, the Southern agrarians as well, mm-hmm. um, because it, it it does also strike me as you know Buchanan fits into this group as well in terms of his thinking, in terms of where he comes from, in terms of you know the worldview there as well, and the Southern agrarians um, are were very clear in their intentions as well. Yeah, yeah. The, what the reason I um, started exploring the Southern agrarians is that I had to explain Buchanan's distinctive notion of the term Leviathan. Mm-hmm. Now, Leviathan is a term that comes to us from the Bible. Um, it is a term that comes to us from the uh, 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes. But Buchanan had a very distinctive definition of Leviathan um, that corresponded to this makers and takers notion mm-hmm. that was wrapped up with hostility to the northeastern elite. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and anyway, there's there a whole range of um, uh, specific, specific points to Buchanan's notion of this threat of the government Leviathan um, that really look very much like the work of um, uh, Donald Davidson, who was mm-hmm. one of the, the leaders of the Southern Agrarians and who um, uh, wrote extensively on Leviathan in the terms that James Buchanan did, um, and who was actually... Um, operating in the same kind of milieu, too, from the 50s and the 60s. He, by then, he, ironically, he started off as an agrarian. By the um, time of the Brown decision, he was working for something called the Southern States Industrial Council, mm. you know, fighting regulations, fighting right. labor, fighting civil rights, um, and allying with the Virginia property delete in much mm-hmm. the same way that James Buchanan Center was. So for a whole variety of reasons, that um, uh, that lineage, I think, is also important. Mm-hmm. Um, and Buchanan, you know, was from Tennessee, was aspiring to go to Vanderbilt, you know, was there were there were lots of of hints that 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 suggested, right. you know, that he that um, this this was part of the one of the formative influences on his world as a young man. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we move? Like, how do we intellectually go beyond the racism of this? 
you know, and make it not about uh, a doctrine born in uh, a very, um, you know, in the again in the in the slave owning class. How do we not just right. make it all? Racism? Yeah, I had really interesting discussions. I'm glad that you you asked that because I had some really interesting discussions with, um, you know, people who like I have a writing group of other historians, um, and there was one in particular who kept pushing on me to say, you know, this is racism or this mm-hmm. is rooted in racism, and and I was trying to be a good historian and stay close to my sources. And Buchanan did not seem to show overt obsession with race in what he was writing, you know, nor did some of these other, um, uh, you know, call them free market fundamentalists, neoliberals, mm-hmm. what have you, but, so, you know, that were part of this international grouping of, of uh, thinkers that he was part of. So I hesitated to go there, but I also hesitated to go there because I think, um, and I think your question sort of uh, points to this, that there's a danger, I think, in, sadly, in our, our racially divided um, country, that if you just say that something is racism, a lot of white people will close their ears, mm. you know, and what I want wanted to do, you know, they're kind of like, oh, been there, heard that, mm-hmm. yeah, that again, you know, and, and what I wanted white people to understand, the vast majority of white people, is that, you know, to put it in simple terms, this cause is coming for you, too, right, you know, right, right. And, and, and so I really tried to, um, to help people see that, you know, there's even a way that you could treat some of the, the racism as a kind of fog when you come down to mm. it, that, that basically these ideas are about, going back to what you said before, keeping a very small minority propertyed class on top of everybody and everything, mm-hmm. you know, not only in the economy, you know, and jobs where people spend most of their waking hours, but also in control of the government. Mm-hmm. And John C. Calhoun, you know, definitely was a pro-slavery theorist. He was, you know, he was he was a man who was a white supremacist, you know, to the bone. But he also, if you read the stuff carefully, he thought that slavery was the best way to maintain a society, a hierarchical society in which some people owned a lot and the vast majority of people didn't. And and I think white people need to understand that because these ideas, you know, again, it is they're, they're not just driving African Americans from the polls with these voter suppression mass, um, uh, methods or the extreme gerrymandering that makes votes not count. They're not just doing that out of some atavistic racism. They're doing that in a cold-eyed calculation because they don't want the people who understand that we need government, you know, to do these things from social security to water and air, you know, pollution to anti-discrimination to other things. They don't want them to have political influence. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, I think it's like going back to this Calhoun thing. Calhoun did, you know, his, his, his slavery was the most profitable ca- profitable capitalist enterprise of the day. Mississippi was much more wealthier, wealthy than New York, had many mm-hmm. more millionaires than New York at the time. But um, So it was a capitalist system. But Calhoun was not only about holding down African Americans. He also did not want the small farmers of the countryside to in- influence government. Right. He didn't want the artisans of the city to in- influence government. And, and until white people understand that, that this these ideas are going to take away everything they hold dear, too. We're just not going to get anywhere in this country. Hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Nancy McLean, whose book, Democracy in Chains, tracks the ideas behind the political success of Charles Koch. 
Well, it's true. And it's hard. Again, it's one of those things where it's easy enough to say there are people who believe they need to say what everybody else should do. Yeah. Right. And that's not unique. I mean, a lot of right. us, a lot of us do that, right? My way is the right way. Or, you know, it's hard to see beyond your own, your own face frequently, uh, the world. But you I think, in. but I think the distinction, and I'm sure you're getting at this though too, the key distinction is that most of us, and I am a, a historian of social movements mm-hmm. too, and their influence on public policy. And I teach the history of social movements beginning with the American Revolution and abolition and going forward to mm-hmm. our own time. But the thing about all other earlier social movements in American history, maybe excepting the Klan, um, is that they were honest about what their goals were, mm-hmm. right? And their vision of the good society and, and their, 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 um, uh, case about what was wrong with the particular, you know, grievances they were raising, that, but they understood that they had to persuade the majority, you know, because right. it's a society in which our votes count, and you have to reach others and persuade them of what you want, and if you succeed in persuading them, that change happens. If you don't, it won't. But the thing about this cause that is so chilling is that they don't, they know they're not going to ever persuade people to their, you know, um, agenda, their full agenda, if they state it honestly. And so they're operating in these surreptitious ways um, that are really undermining the fabric of governance in our society. I mean, we now have a point where they just came out that the the majority of the Republican voters for Donald Trump, like, think college is not a good idea, you know, that that Mm -hmm. higher education is more of a problem than than an asset. I mean, this is in the 21st century world where we're losing jobs, and, you know, it's just it's just frightening, I think, um, how uh, what this cause is willing to unleash um, in order to or capitalize on and, and further in order to achieve its ends. Yeah, yeah. Again, there, I think that's why the history is is um, telling because what I was able to demonstrate in the book in the early chapters is that this cause in its earliest years, this libertarian cause, was perfectly happy to exploit the white supremacy um, and and at the and and effectively ally with the most ardent segregationists against um, the Supreme Court decision and uh, in order to get you know, to further their libertarian ideal of privatizing public education. So mm-hmm. so if they did that in this founding moment, we shouldn't be surprised at what they're exploiting in our current moment is the right. way I would look at it. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because we, again, um, we find groups that make common cause uh, with certain ideas and so, certain other groups that kind of confuse us sometimes, right? So, yeah. Um, you know, you can make, uh, we had a show on here where the author was talking about how right-wing groups, uh, primarily this is in uh, Europe, but here also right-wing groups um, using feminist ideas, right, to to sort of attack the a Muslim immigration, right? So Muslim men are, you know, uh, the worst the worst men for women, right? They keep women down and the, the, the burqas and, all, you know, all these things are feminist problems. And so let's make common cause with feminists. And in a way, you think, well, that's that's good, I guess, right, <laughs> to have people fighting on the same side, at least in some ways, but it furthers their other agenda, right? It, and this is right, of- and we saw this in the 1920s with yeah. the Ku Klux Klan. You know, you asked yeah. before to talk about my yeah. first book, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and second, but um, mm-hmm. with the, the Ku Klux Klan did the same thing in the 1920s. So they would say, for example, they would, you know, while they were opposing anything substantive that women's movement organizations mm-hmm. 
because mm-hmm. we're trying to do in the way of policy, they would pose themselves as the defenders of uh, white women mm-hmm. from what they called white slavery, and they 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 basically set you know portrayed Jews as preying on young women in the cities mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the motion picture industry, prostitution, etc. Um, and similarly, they would do that with Catholic priests and say Catholic priests were preying on these young women. Um, they would do that with you know with these fake allegations of rape against African American men to right. justify vigilante activity. So so this these this exploitation of the notion of the vulnerable woman mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, has a long lineage on the right, but it the lineage has also always been accompanied by an unwillingness to do the things that actual women are calling on government to do. And show me the way to get home. The Alabama song we'll play for this break is Southern Star, a 1990 number one country hit. It begins, Oh, Southern Star, how I wish you would shine and show me the way to get home. Well, I'm blue collar branded and stuck in a mill. Hard work is a way of life for me. Why would a blue collar worker think the economics and social policies of billionaires would show him a way home? brilliant propaganda, of course. More with Nancy McLean when Interchange returns on WFHB. I'm rolling with a feeling and I can't slow down. I need a guiding light shining down to lead me through the night. Oh, southern star, how I wish you would shine and show me the way to get home. Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. Nancy McLean is our guest, and the topic is the path to oligarchy she traces in her new book, Democracy in Chains. For this segment, we turn to Charles Koch, whose daddy, Fred Koch, was an originating member of the John Birch Society, and Charles joined as well. Koch isn't alone in this bloodless coup, stealing the country from we the people, but he's the primary architect, and he is a brilliant tactician. Grassroots tea parties? Nope funded and primed with a libertarian agenda. University centers founded for the preservation of democracy, or freedom, or liberty, or whatever, are just about teaching our founding principles, right? Nope. They're beachheads funded to promote libertarian ideals which are anti-government and anti-democratic. Gotta hand it to him. Charles Koch learned a lot from Vladimir Lenin. And show me the way to get home Maybe you can help me then um, 
why why libertarians are pro prostitution or why that's on their list of the things that they're for? Oh well, so this is very interesting too, um, uh, and goes back to what we were talking about about the stealth mm-hmm. uh, nature mm-hmm. of this operation now. Because you're absolutely right. If you look at libertarian party platforms, uh, you know, from the past and probably the present, you will see you know like a, a consistent approach to being anti-government. Uh, but and Charles Koch in his earlier years, the Cato Institute that he founded um, and, uh, you know, continues to work with, that that Cato Institute uh, was really um, uh, hostile to the kind of religious right efforts to um, ban consenting sex between adults, right? So mm-hmm. they would see prostitution. They said, you know, they advocated the legalization of prostitution. They advocated the legalization of drugs. They advocated that there should be no criminalization of homosexuality or other um, other acts between consenting adults. That was all, you know, um, uh, under the rubric of freedom, right, mm-hmm. and individual freedom um, that this cause was promoting. But now, um, and particularly since uh, 2010, since Charles Koch and his fellow donors have moved aggressively to grab political power, Cato is not doing that anymore. And there was actually a big fight in the organization that I described briefly in the book, but where one person who had been a staffer for many years said, look, just because we support legalized prostitution doesn't mean we want to be prostitutes. <laughs> and he was referring to what Charles Koch was turning them into, because they, through these alliances with the religious right and with the aggressive uh, foreign policy forces on the right, you know, again, Charles Koch, you know, he's, and, and, and here's where I also differ, I think, from many um, liberal and left critics of the Koch monies. I actually think Charles Koch is a very brilliant man, and mm-hmm. I think the left has grossly underestimated his intelligence and his strategic um, ability. You know, mm-hmm. this man, yes, he inherited a family business, but he multiplied it at least a thousand times over, possibly as much as 5,000 times mm-hmm. over. So he's a very, and he's got three engineering degrees from MIT, always playing the long game, etc. So he's a very smart man. And again, what he came to understand is that libertarians would never get out of their little self-reinforcing ghetto, and that they needed to somehow harness larger numbers to give the appearance of popularity to what they were doing to the country. And the way that Koch and his advisors found to do that was to appeal to these wider forces, mm-hmm. like the religious right, like the NRA and the gun lobby, um, uh, you know, and, and other other such groups. And basically, you know, each of these groups gets something in this scheme that it wants, or I should say its leaders get something that mm-hmm. they want. Um, but those leaders turn out the voters to the polls. Right. And again, what is just so... Um, infuriating, as you could hear in my sigh, I guess, to me about this cause, is the way the leaders aren't telling the grassroots the truth. So a case in point, um, two of our best, you know, the best social scientists in the country, Theta Scotch polled at, at um, Harvard, and one of her students, Vanessa Williams, did a fantastic book about the Tea Party where they just went on a kind of a listening tour, right? And mm-hmm. they wanted to understand what was going on. So they went out to Tea Party groups around the country and, you know, all kinds of different localities. They attended meetings. They talked to people. They interviewed them. They could not find a single 
grassroots Tea Party member who wanted to see the privatization of Social Security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. You know, and by privatization, people need to remember, you take those funds away from the government, you give them to the financial sector. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen how responsible the financial sector right, is. Right. No grassroots Tea Party person wanted that. And yet, Charles Koch and what Scotchpole and, and Williams call these roving billionaires who attached themselves to this cause, who made this the energy at the grassroots a delivery vehicle for their own agenda, are using that grassroots energy of the Tea Party groups as a battering ram to get what they have long wanted, which is Social Security privatization and Medicare privatization. So, you know, I just honestly, as somebody who studies, again, social movements, the idea that self-appointed leaders of a cause would be using the grassroots members to do something that they they don't want, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's just, I've never seen anything like it before. And I, I frankly, I don't think we've seen anything in world history of the audacity of our right-wing billionaires at this point. And the reason that is happening, ultimately, is that we have allowed inequality to develop to a degree in our society that most people cannot even process it is so great. You know, they don't even have a sense of how bad it is. But the fact that somebody like Charles Koch has, you know, five or six billion Mm dollars, so that tens of millions of dollars of, you know, investment in various groups is pocket change to him. You know, that, that, that they can use that well to push this agenda, which is antithetical to the wishes not only of Democrats, but of Republicans, too, that tells us that we've come to some kind of a pass in our society where we need to listen up and pay attention. And, and if we care about the, having a democracy, we need to be paying attention now. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Nancy McLean, whose book, Democracy in Chains, tracks the ideas behind the political success of Charles Koch. Is there honesty um, in these places, these intellectual bastions now? You know, you talk about, it may have been Jane Mayer that talks about beachheads, but, um, you know, the, the places like George Mason, which just stands out. Obviously, the University of Chicago stood out for its formative, you know, uh, Pinochet, Friedman, etc., um, Alan Bloom, and and so on. Um, but is is George Mason? Is the Mercatus Center? You know, are these people understand this long game as well? So they're all telling, uh, they're all obfuscating their own understanding as well. Yeah, these beachheads are so dangerous to public higher education and to civic knowledge that I can't even begin to describe it to you probably in the mm-hmm. time we have remaining. I do mm-hmm. talk about it, about the George Mason one in the book, um, but this this group, the Cokes now, are pushing to implant these beachheads right. at universities around the country, and there's just like a new one in the news every day. Utah was the latest. I would um, refer your listeners to a wonderful group founded by students at George Mason and other universities affected by uh, these beachheads. It's called Uncoke mm-hmm. My Campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a really informative website. They do great research uh, and they are fighting to have transparency in these donor uh, uh, agreements that universities are negotiating. And it's all the more troubling that they are uh, establishing these beachheads in public institutions. I mean, George Mason is a public institution. Right. And yet, Charles Koch is its largest donor. And they are doing all of this stuff in the dark, refusing using to um, uh, reveal the strings they put on these grants, and you can be sure there's a lot of them. Uh, and the people who have received these grants, I've experienced this myself in their attacks on me, they, they are not obeying the most elementary ethical norms. It's Ethics 101 to 
practice full disclosure, you know, when you're writing to say mm-hmm. that you, you know, for example, if they're attacking me because I critique this Coke cause, readers need to know that they're taking money from this Coke cause in order to fairly assess right. what they're saying. But these guys don't do that. And I think that the ethical breaches are so extensive uh, in, in the, the breaks with uh, traditional norms of uh, how what sway donors have when they give money to a higher education. All of these things are being really radically breached by the Kochs. And I really do hope more journalists will pick this up. You know, instead of focusing endlessly on Washington and Donald Trump and his tweets, they really need to get out to the states like yours in Indiana, mine like North Carolina, and see how power is being abused by this cause. Because what's going on in the states is going to be coming to the the federal level Mm -hmm. uh, soon, and people really need to understand it before, before it really starts going full tilt. Well, it is important. And all you have to do, it's interesting, all you have to do is kind of look at one one program. If, you, if you're if you anywhere near a university, a state-run university in your own in your own world, in your own time, you can t- you can look up pretty much, I, I would imagine, almost any of them and find some of these, pla- and, well, find them in, in almost all places, right? So here, yeah. uh, I think uh, at, uh, at IU, we've got the uh, Tocqueville lecture series, Tocqueville Forum, which is in the Ostrom Workshop. And this is a part of the um, School of Public uh, and Environmental uh, Administration, right? Um, And these all have, uh, I don't know at what point they're entangled, which is part of the problem too, right? Is that you know there are good, and I I just said good people. That you mean honest? Uh, yes, I, I do. I mean, people, yeah. Are, yeah, people who have who want to do and and honest is, isn't always a good thing in the sense that they may honestly again believe the things they believe. I, I'm not sure how to use many of these terms anymore. You know, yeah, I think you're. Yeah, I hear you. That, yes, the vision that, is so deep. Yeah, actually, as a historian, I feel like the the level of vitriol and the, the depth of the divisions now in the country mm-hmm. reminds me of the run up mm-hmm. to the Civil War. It is really scary. Well, I do have a friend that's always been saying, "Well, we are moving that direction pretty quickly anymore." Um, yeah. But yeah, so you've got these programs everywhere now and and they're they're useful and they're used a program on freedom and free societies at cornell program in democracy and citizenship at emory program in constitutional government at harvard you name them you can just keep going down the list the civic education project at george mason of course and and so they're everywhere right well funded everywhere and even faculty you might say well that's that faculty is not implicated they're a left-wing socialist or whatever right you know and so the entanglements are so deep yeah. Uh, and it, that it gets hard to even, like, to critique it. <laughs> right? Well, you know, this is in- so interesting that you say it, because that was w- another one of the things that made me nauseated mm-hmm. uh, frequently when I was coming to the contemporary side of this story and seeing Buchanan's ideas play out in mm-hmm. these Coke operations. Um, because, as you say, it is just so extensive, and they're all over the place. Uh, but one thing that's really heartened me about publishing the book and then being in touch with other great like journalists and researchers who are working on this is there are a lot of great people who are doing excellent work, but we need to be sharing it. And so mm-hmm. I uh, recently was talking with someone at the Center for Media and Democracy and suggesting that we need to have something like the Panama Papers collaborative, you know, that there was an international association of journalists who found these bank, you know, these hidden, um, I forget what, what you call them, but these like secret dark money things that mm. were being based for tax avoidance in Panama. Mm-hmm. And all these journalists work together in a cooperative, non-competitive way to help people understand this and be able to trace this money. And I believe that we need to have a similar thing, you know, the, mm-hmm. the kind of um, Coke Papers project or mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. you know, where, where all the people who are, you know, working on 
on a piece of this elephant Mm -hmm. could somehow be in combination and be sharing resources and sharing information because it is just, as you say, so huge and so vast and the tentacles have spread out so wide and the money is oftentimes so well disguised that we really need that level of cooperation to get to this thing, which is, again, insinuating itself through our, you know, uh, state governments, through our courts, through our federal government, through our law schools. It is just astonishing in its its audacity and its breadth, and we're going to need to work together to identify it all um, and to figure out how to deal with it. Mm, very good. But again, I will say, again, I think mm-hmm. the most important thing I learned in my research is that these guys, and they're almost overwhelmingly mm-hmm, guys, mm-hmm. Uh, white, you know, these older conservative white guys, and I admit, I love, there are many wonderful white guys in my world, I want to say, <laughs> these guys are, it's an extremely male cause, always yeah, has been, about yeah. 98%, and that tells you something, yeah. you know? But um, uh, because women are more likely to understand the makers and takers distinction is mm-hmm. silly. You know, mm-hmm. they're making the future generations and saving right. the old right. people and stuff. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, again, I think the single most important uh, takeaway point from my book is that they, these people, these guys are doing this because they know that they are a permanent minority movement mm-hmm. and that they cannot win by openly telling the people what they want, and so they're working in these closeted ways. And to me, once we recognize that, that's an incredible source of power, Mm -hmm. right, and Mm -hmm. encouragement and confidence. And I'm finding that from people who are writing to me who have read the book and organizations that are starting to, you know, um, hold, like, uh, what do you call it, reading groups around it Mm -hmm. and stuff like they're saying, yes, this is us. You know, it's like, you know, people have been so beaten up by the various, Mm -hmm. you know, the the abuse of power from this cause that they've sort of forgotten Mm -hmm. that they are the majority, the people are the majority. And I think knowing that, uh, that knowledge is power, um, and also is the kind of power that can save people from panic and from doing stupid things in panic, but Mm -hmm. instead, you know, think about a long, uh, a long process that it's going to take to reclaim this and, and a broad process that it's going to take. But I think when people understand, um, you know, that, that, the nature of this cause, mm-hmm. I think that they will feel empowered, and I think that they will be able to, to come together with others to uh, to address it. But I don't think it's going to be an easy uh, an easy thing right. at all. Right. I think, you know, people need to remember that democracy is not just something that, you know, sort of, you know, is a thing that <laughs> right. comes to us. So it's something right. that you have to recreate, you know, right. all the time, and every day in, day out, you're in and you're out. And there are certain moments in our history where we have really had to fight for basic democratic values for the value of the notion of the equality of each soul and each, you know, right, the eyes sure. of God, each person in the light of the law, etc. Those moments were, you know, the 1860s with the Civil War and Reconstruction, the 1930s with the New Deal against the, the reaction of property that didn't want working people to have any any rights at all, and the 1960s with the Civil Rights Movement and then the Women's Movement and Environmentalism. Those were times when, you know, these reactionary uh, groups really wanted to, to curtail democracy and other groups of citizens in their great numbers and their great creativity mobilized to actually expand and enrich and deepen our democracy and our you know understanding of what citizenship entails. This is our final break. Here's Alabama with Tennessee River, a country number one from 1980 that I'll dedicate to James McGill Buchanan native of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. When we come back, we'll see how the U.S. is becoming more and more like Pinochet's Chile. 
Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. In the mountains where I call home, Lord, time to get there. Don't know why I ever wrong. Oh, Tennessee River and the mountain land. We get together anytime we can. Oh, Tennessee River. Tennessee River, walking hand in hand, gonna raise a family, Lord, settle down, where peace and love can still be found, oh, Tennessee River and a mountain man, we get together any time we can, oh, Tennessee River. Welcome back. This is the last segment of our 90-minute special, We the Shackle, a conversation with Democracy and Chains author Nancy McClain. We'll end by looking at the ways it appears that the U.S. is being maneuvered toward a constitutional convention intended to further tie the hands of the American people, whose only chance to combat the power of billionaires is to come together in a collective opposition. New laws already being implemented around the country are making this more and more difficult. Nancy McLean asks us to see the future of the U.S. in the example of dictator Augusto Pinochet's Chile. Well, I think you make great points, and uh, one of the the issues that we we walk away from with this too is the is the absolute um, constancy, maybe my, the right word, of this particular group and their cohort of doing this work that we're not doing on the democratic side, right? So if you use exercising as as a uh, a metaphor, right? If you if you do push ups every day and then you stop for a week, you you kind of almost got to start over. Uh, you know, that's we are doing a good thing for yourself. It tends to be very hard to do, and you must keep doing it. <laughs> but yeah. when you stop and be complacent in it, you know, it's it, yeah. it's like I you lost it all. Metaphor. Mm-hmm. I need mm-hmm. to do some push <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know we're out of time, and I know I've kept you a long time, but if, if you do have a little more time, is there any chance to look at Chile as this template where you think there's even possibility that we might be in that Chile space? Right now, and where, yeah. and where, where I mean, because yeah. to, to me, it seems like that's the the reason this is coming to this kind of loggerheads now, and Trump as well, like this kind of craziness that's happening right now, is allowing more of this to go forward even faster. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because of the, because yeah. of the smoke screen. Yeah. This Thank is this has to that. happen. People yeah. said they thought that was the most powerful chapter yeah, of the book yeah, yeah, and yeah, certainly yeah. the most breathtaking. Yeah. But um, just to fill in your listeners, um, many, many readers of at least of a certain age and, you know, broadly liberal or left, uh, knew that Milton Friedman, the Chicago School econom- economist, went to um, Chile under the brutal Pinochet dictatorship in 1975 to advise on inflation. And Friedman was held accountable for that for the rest of his life. What most people don't know, except for a few Latin Americanists, and now the research that I've done, is that Buchanan and his Virginia school also went to Chile in 1980 and had a much more permanent and lasting effect because Buchanan was advising the dictatorship and its civilian supporters on how to draft a constitution that would let them go back to elections, um, but maintain what this uh, very reactionary Chilean elite had achieved by completely suppressing, you know, all trade unions, farmers organizations, students, etc., and and killing thousands of people. Um, the the radical changes that they had made in, in the years of the dictatorship um, were were kind of ratified in this constitution that Buchanan advised on, and that um, that made it so that even when the country went back to civilian rule, this constitution made it impossible for the people to achieve their will, even when they had two-thirds majorities on things. So a later president, Michelle Bachelet, who was elected by a two-thirds majority, said that they they wanted to get rid of the what she called the authoritarian trammels of the Constitution and that they needed a Constitution without locks and bolts. And so my point is that Buchanan's um, advice was exactly on how to put on those locks and bolts on what the majority could do. Uh, and he did that very effectively there. And it's had lasting, devastating consequences on everything from, you know, because schools were uh, privatized, you know, radical inequality among young people with millions of young people demonstrating in the streets a few years ago, but unable to to, to reverse these changes to their school system. Social security privatization, so that people's retirement investments went from the government into the Chilean financial sector, which was as corrupt and right, messed right. up as the American financial sector, and took huge cuts off the top from people's savings, and then millions of people lost their savings when the when the um, financial uh, in a financial collapse. So it's so haunting um, how Chile, I think, kind of presages what, what mm-hmm. we could see in the United States from these policies and then from the kind of constitution that uh, James Buchanan advised. He called for constitutional revolution, said no constitution in the world adequately protected property rights and wealth. Um, and that has been picked up by these Charles Koch-funded uh, operations who are now pushing for a constitutional convention in the United States. They have actually gotten 28 of the 34 states that they need. And if they are able to call such a constitutional convention, they will put, they, they, there, there, are no, there are no restraints on such a constitutional convention. So they could radically rewrite our Constitution mm. to protect the rights of the most wealthy and to suppress uh, the... Um, uh, the, the participation and the authority of the people, and mm-hmm. they have 
at least, I think it's 10 or a dozen specific amendments to do that mm. already mapped out. So this, to me, is also terrifying because so many uh, liberal people and people on the left are talking about impeaching Trump. And then, you know, you could see them being, in a sense, suckered into mm-hmm. such a constitutional convention mm-hmm. after what we've seen with Donald Trump. And I believe it would be mm-hmm. uh, an unbelievable and incredible disaster um, and that the yeah. Koch team would surely dominate yeah. at such a convention. So we, again, are at such a crucial historical turning point. And if what we do now, you know, what good Americans who believe in democracy, who believe in basic fairness, who believe that we need some kind of a safety net, who believe we need to do things to protect our environment, if these people are not engaged it's starting to pay attention and getting more involved in the political process over the next year or so. This cause that I write about is pushing for changes that they have described as permanent mm-hmm. and that they are hellfire determined to, yeah. to enact um, and have put great money and, and power behind, they will change our country so radically that it would take generations, I believe, mm-hmm. to bring back the things that most people value in government action today. Well, I think the point you made there about Chile, too, is you know, millions of people in the streets trying to make changes, and you can't make changes because yeah. there's, there's a law, and apparently you respect the law, even though a million of you are in the street. <laughs> Apparently, you still respect the law, or, you're, or there are guns pointed at you, I guess. I'm not sure. Well, this you know. is the other thing that scares me, actually, now that you're, you're saying this, uh, Doug, is that these libertarians idolize the point in American history they look to as, like, the greatest time of all. It was the Gilded Age, mm-hmm. you know, the period mm-hmm. from after the suppression of Reconstruction and before the pre- Progressive Era, when corporations were really in the saddle, and the Supreme Court was would routinely strike down um, reforms that had majority support, you know, in, in then it was state governments. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it was a very activist Supreme Court, but activist on the side of property. Well, that's the period that these guys idolize. But for historians, you know, what we remember of the Gilded Age is that we had rolling civil wars in this country. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really did. You know, it was these pitched battles between labor and capital because labor had no rights and capital had all the power and private armies, you know, and you had, you know, Haymarket and Pullman and Cordorley, you know, you could just go through like, a mm-hmm. list of places where there were, you know, actually kind of civil war-like battles mm-hmm. between uh, corporations and their workers, and also that was the period of the extreme suppression of voting rights in the South, where African Americans' um, constitu- civil and constitutional rights and human dignity were trampled upon. This is the era that these guys lionize, you know, and that right. they look to as a model of a good political economy. So <laughs> again, you know, I. I don't want to sound like a Cassandra, but really, we need to pay attention yeah. uh, and understand this thing. And if we care about what's happening and we see the picture, um, we need to act before it's too late because this this cause is, is deadly determined to affect radical changes that most people in this country do not want and would not support. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Nancy McLean, for joining me on Interchange. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. It's been a pleasure talking with you. There are people in this country who work hard every day, not for fame. That's our show. We'll go out with another number one country hit for Alabama, the 1985 40-hour week. Thanks to Nancy McLean for tracking the intellectual path from the secessionist South to Wichita, Kansas, home of Charles and David Koch, to the libertarian think tank Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Ideas have consequences. 
Next week, White Fright, polling the reactionary right with Christopher Parker. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. And Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Driving home the nail For the one behind the counter Ringing up the sale For the one who fights the fire The one who brings the mail For everyone who works behind the scenes You can see them every morning In the factories and the fields In the city streets and the quiet country towns Together like spokes inside a wheel, they keep this country turning around. Hello, Kansas, sweet Bill Farmer, let me thank you for your time. You work a 40 hour week for a living, just to send it on down the line. Hello, Miss Virginia, coal miner, let me thank you for your time. We work a 40-hour week for a living Just to send it on down the line This is for the one who drives the big rig Up and down the road For the one out in the warehouse Bringing in the load For the waitress, the mechanic The policeman on patrol 